0: All right, well, we're going to do something a little different today. I want you to turn with me to Daniel chapter 9. And what I'm going to focus on is the prophecies about Christ's birth. And when we think about Christ's birth, the question that we have to ask ourselves is this How is Jesus different than any other baby born on the planet? How is he different? How is he not just the same as everybody else? And you could, you could say, well, it's because of the resurrection, and, and, and I agree. You look at the resurrection of Christ, and, and if he can truly rise from the grave, then he must be who he said he is, and we have plenty of witnesses to that. But is there anything that we can look at that we can say, here's something, and then here's the fulfillment of that? And that would be prophecy, right? And so we go and we can, we can look at prophecies that prophesy about Christ and prophesy about his birth and prophesy about who he is. Because really, we got to ask the question, if, if we were to try to pinpoint, if you were God and you were trying to pinpoint one person on the history of the planet, that uh, of people, of every person that has ever lived, and you point to one, would you be able to do that? Can God do that? Did God point to only one person? Or are there a lot of people that kind of could fulfill these messianic prophecies? When I think about this issue, I think about, Amazon, right? Amazon can get a box to you from any place in the world, and it goes to one person in the planet out of eight billion, right? I mean, it comes to your house, and as long as somebody doesn't steal it off your porch, (laughs) then you get the box. And it has your name on it. You're the only one that's supposed to be able to open the box. It comes to one person in one household, in one block, in one city, in one state, in one country. Right? And they get it to you most every time. And so you look at that and you think, okay, say that one of the wise men decided, you know, I'm not going to be able to make the trip. And so he puts his myrrh, he puts his gold or whatever in an Amazon box and puts it out and the Amazon camel comes by. And hauls the box, you know, to Bethlehem, right? And so you, you think, I, in fact, I realize that's why God didn't come in, that, why Jesus didn't come in our day. All the wise men would just send Amazon boxes. He got three, three Amazon boxes and our story would really be different, you know? And then he received the three Amazon boxes and opened them up and they were gold, frankincense, and myrrh. No three wise men, right? And so you look at that and you think, wait a minute. How would God point out and identify one person on the planet? I want to show you just a few prophecies. Because you think about it, an address label only has a little bit of information. It has a name, an address, and a, a state, a country, zip code, just a few items, and it comes to you. So you don't need a lot in order to identify one person on the planet. So we're going to look at a few prophecies. There are a lot of prophecies in Scripture. We're going to look at a few. And so I, I ask the question, how accurate do the prophecies need to be so that we know that they're from God? really accurate, 100%. That's what Deuteronomy says. That's what Moses says in Deuteronomy. In fact, in Deuteronomy 18, he says, you may say to yourselves, how can we know when a message has not been spoken by the Lord? I mean, that's a question we would all have, right? How do I know when God hasn't said something? He says in verse 22, Deuteronomy 18, if what a prophet claims proclaims in the name of the Lord does not take place or come true, that is a message the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has broken, spoken presumptu- presumptuously. Do not be afraid of him. And in fact, a little earlier in the passage, he said, stone him. You know? Off with his head. I mean, if a guy doesn't 100%, I mean, you think about that. If he says this is going to happen, it doesn't happen. Nostradamus would have been right out. Right? I mean, a lot of people look at anybody and say, oh, wow, they they had one thing right. Yeah, but look at all they said. And they got one thing kind of right. You can almost kind of barely get something. And you look at that and you think, wait a minute. I need something that's more accurate than that to convince me that Jesus Christ is more than any other baby on the planet. Why would God tell us ahead of time uh, about Jesus coming, about Messiah's coming? Well, he would tell us because he would want us to know ahead of time, hey, this is coming. He would want us to know and have something that we can look at and, and, and be confident about as we see an event happen and know, oh, you know, it's really easy for us to say, oh, yeah, well, I planned that after the fact. Yeah, I, I was going to say that. Yeah, right. And so you look at God and he says hundreds of years ahead of time. With Daniel, 500 years before Christ is born, he's speaking. With Isaiah, we're going to look at 750 years before the events occur. He's already speaking about what's going to happen. But how do we know he's talking specifically about Jesus Christ and not about somebody else? And so we've, we've got to look. And you think, why does why does God even give us this, after all, in the first place? Because he wants us to have hope. He wants, to ha- wants us to have hope. And in fact, we see uh, the Apostle Paul in Romans talks about... Old Testament scripture, and he says in Romans 15, for everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through endurance and encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. His goal is for us to have hope. Our hope is in Jesus Christ. And so that hope, when you look at the prophecies and the prophets, you realize there's a lot of prophecy in the Old Testament. Seventeen books devoted specifically to prophecy, and there's other prophecy in some of the other books, but seventeen books. What does that tell us? If prophecy is designed to give us hope, and the scriptures are designed to give us hope, God wants us to have a massive amount of hope, and He wants us to not miss it. God's not doing with like a shell game, moving things around, and saying, "Okay, is this the Christ or not?" And you're kind of going, "I'm not sure. Uh, How can I tell?" He was very specific when he gives us the scriptures about who this Messiah is. So I've I've got an address label on here and I'm going to show it to you in a minute. Not just yet. And I want you to look with me at Daniel 9 because we gain an important insight from Daniel chapter 9. It's not one that people normally think of when they think of the prophecies about Christ. I mean, some do. Bible scholars do. But if you've if you, if you just read the scriptures and you haven't uh, uh, looked at Daniel or thought of him in that way, I want you to look at Daniel chapter 9. Now, Daniel was, uh, lived during the time of, of, of several kings, but also uh, Darius was one that he was writing under, Darius son of Xerxes. It says, who was made ruler over Babylon kingdom, uh, ba- the Babylonian kingdom. Verse two, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures according to the word of the Lord, given to Jeremiah the prophet. So he's reading Jeremiah. He's having his quiet times in Jeremiah. Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So where is he looking? Well, if you look back at Jeremiah, uh, you find out that uh, in Jeremiah chapter 29, he talks about this. He says, this is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, and what did he say? He was reading Jeremiah the prophet that the desolation of Israel would last 70 years. This is what the Lord says, Jeremiah 29. 70 years are completed for Babylon. I will bring you, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. And at the time, Jeremiah is in Jerusalem. He's writing from Jerusalem, we find out from the first part of the chapter he says, I'm going to bring you back to this place. And then you know the next verse, many of you. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for calamity. To give you a hope and a future. So he's talking to Israel. Seventy years. So I think that's an important thing that we need to, to write down. And write down 70 years. Okay, he's talking about 70 years. Why 70 years? Why not... 80. Why not 100? Why not a round number? Why not 500? Why 70 years? Well, we find out that when Moses was speaking to the children of Israel, he said, you know, I'm going to have some judgment come upon you if you don't do certain things according to to the way that I've set them out. And one of the things that God set out was every seven years, you need to allow the land to not grow crops. We know today that that would be a great thing to do to crop rotation or that idea of not growing the same crops on the same piece of property because uh, uh, it would cause the crops not to be as productive. The ground is not as fertile because it sucks up all the nutrients and you need to let the ground breathe, so to speak, to leave it. And so we know practically that would be the case, but God set up in the law, this is what you shall do every seven years. And here's what... Uh, judgment, Moses says, will happen if you don't do that. He says, uh, your land will be laid waste. Your cities will lie in ruins. Uh, this is in Leviticus 26, verse 34. Then the land will enjoy its Sabbath years all the time that it lies desolate. And you are in the country of your enemies. Hmm, they're in Babylon. and they're in the, So they're in the country of their enemies. The land is lying desolate for 70 years. It says, then the land will enjoy its rest in its Sabbath. And you think, wait a minute. If it's every seven years, the land is supposed to lie fallow. It's it's supposed to not be uh, uh, produced. How many years would it take to get 70 years? Well, you'd have 70 times 7, right? Every seven years. So apparently for 490 years... They did not obey the Lord in regard to allowing the land to not produce. Well, you can imagine how scared, scary that would be to not produce your prop, crops every seven years. That means you would have to trust the Lord during that year to provide for you. You would have to make some good plans to make sure and pray that the rats don't eat up your grain during that you put aside. And you realize that was a year of faith. And they were going for 490 years and not taking that year of just trusting the Lord. It's similar to the time in the, the manna in the wilderness that they were supposed to own, uh, take manna for two days on the, on, on, the, on, on the day before the Sabbath because they weren't supposed to gather on the Sabbath. And so you realize that for 490 years, they were disobedient. And so God set aside 70 years for them to be in exile. That's an important thing to know. And, and, and you realize that when you look at Daniel chapter 9, Uh, In verse 2, he says that he was looking at Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolations of Jerusalem would last 70 years. Now, the other question that I have is, when did he write this? What year did Daniel write this? 537, according to some scholars. 537. When did they go into exile? 586. They were almost 50 years into the exile. Can you imagine if you're Daniel and you're writing 50 years into the exile, we only got 20 more years left? Man, you're, you're thinking, hey, it's getting close. And so he starts praying. He says, I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed. And then we have this long prayer that goes all the way down to verse 20. And he says, while I was speaking, verse 20, and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of the people of Israel. So he's praying for the, for the nation. He's praying, God, we have sinned against you, and, and I'm sure He's praying according to that the promise that God, I, I know the plans that I have for you declares the Lord plans for welfare, and he's praying for the welfare of Israel. And then Gabriel shows up. The angel Gabriel shows up. When angel, uh, Gabriel shows up, he speaks to him verse 24. He says, seventy-sevens sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. The most holy, who is that? The anointed one, he says in verse 25. The anointed one, he says in verse 26. And the word that's translated anointed one is the Hebrew word Mashiach, Messiah. So the Messiah, this is a messianic passage. And so he says that there's 70 sevens. So here Daniel says 70 times seven. Hmm. Some people have asked the question, is that supposed to be... Months? Is that supposed to be weeks? Is that supposed to be years? What does this seven refer to? Because it's just seven units of seven. And you kind of go, well, the context seems to clearly point to 490 years on this end. And so you have 70 years going backward is the reason for the 70 year captivity. And then Daniel talks about another period of 490 years. But he does something interesting. He divides it 70 up. In verse 25, he says, No one understand this from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes. There will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. And you think, wait a minute. That only adds up to 69 sevens. What about that extra seven? And when you begin, continue to read in Daniel, you realize this is talking about end-time prophecy in some sense. And so our focus then today would be on this 69 times 7, or 483 years. And so you go back and you think, now how can I? what is he trying to tell me about that 69 times 7? And so you go back and you look at verse 25 and it says, From the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. You think, well, what decree was that? We have Cyrus who made a decree that the temple would be rebuilt. And and Zerubbabel goes and rebuilds the temple. Could it be that? Maybe, but it's not the city. We see Artaxerxes, and I'll just call him Art. have Artaxerxes, who goes back and sends Ezra back. And who does Ezra rebuild? The people. He begins to teach them the law because for 70 years they haven't had the law taught in such a way. And so he begins to just read the law to them and, and they weep. and and uh, But then Artaxerxes makes another decree to Nehemiah. One of the shortest people in the Bible, Nehemiah. So, sorry. Uh, <laughs> and everybody moaned together, right? And and so you have Nehemiah, and what is this decree? This decree is to build the walls. And so in Nehemiah chapter 1, we have the walls being rebuilt. Because he comes to the king, he's the cupbearer to the king, and he, he, he's sad in the presence of the king, and you don't come sad in the presence of the king without forfeiting your life most of the time. He comes sad to the king. He must have been favored by the king because the king said, what do you need? And he prayed to the God, to the God of Israel and then he spoke. And he says, this is what I need. My, the, city, the city is torn up. It's, the gates are broken down. The walls are destroyed. And so he allows him to rebuild. He says, go. What do you need? And he tells him exactly what he needs. Well, the question is, is what, when did this happen? What was the date of this decree? And I got this date. From a, a book called Chronological Aspects of the Life of Christ by harold honer it 's an older work, but he did an incredible job on it uh, he He puts march fifth four forty four b c as the date of when this decree occurred, and he shows you all the reasons in the in the book why he picks that date we 'll just stick with his date march fifth four forty four b c so if we take that sixty 69- nine Times seven years, times, and we'll use 360, that's the date that he uses because he said in ancient times, 360 was how many days that they considered to be in a year, Uh, not the 365 that we go with, which would make, uh, I believe it's 173,880 days. So he gives us the math on this, Daniel does. And so then the question is, okay, if I put add 173,880 days to March 5th, and there's no zero year, so that this goes from 1 B.C. to 1 A.D., there's no zero uh, uh, A.D. And so if I add those together, I come up with a date of March 30th, 33 A.D., You know what happened on March 30th, 33 A.D.? Palm Sunday. Jesus rode in on a donkey into Jerusalem. And what does Daniel say is going to happen after uh, March 30th, 33 A.D.? He says... From the issue of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the Anointed One, the Mashiach, the Messiah, the ruler comes, there will be seven, seven, and six, sixty-two sevens. And then he says it will be rebuilt with streets in a trench. But in times of trouble, and you read the Book of Nehemiah, and you realize it was a time of trouble. He says after the sixty-two sevens, the Anointed One will be cut off and have nothing. And so you realize after March thirtieth, thirty-three A.D. He's saying Messiah will die. So we know the, what's called the terminus ad quo, the beginning point. What's the ending point, the terminus ad quim? And he talks about that in the very next sentence. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. We know the city and the sanctuary, the city of Jerusalem, and the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. by the Romans. And has not, the temple has not been rebuilt to this day. And so what you have here is 37 years. 37 year window. Daniel's saying, okay, you take all of time, all of recorded time, all time when people have been on the planet, I'm going to tell you when the Messiah is going to die. And it's going to be in this 37-year window. And you go, wow. Jesus died in that 37-year window. Could it be? Were there other messiahs or claims to be messiah during that 37-year window that died during that time? We know Bar Kokhba in 135 AD claimed to be messiah. But that's not in that 37-year window. That's outside that window. He tells us, this is the 37-year window, Messiah's going to die. You think, okay, well, a lot of people died then. What else do we have? Let's turn to Isaiah. I want you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 7. In fact, Isaiah talks a lot about Jesus. A lot about, it's a very messianic book. And it focuses on the person of this Messiah who was to come. And he identifies him by the manner of his birth. In Isaiah 7, 14. We sing about this, we think about it during the Christmas season. It says, The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. So we have a name. Was Jesus called Emmanuel? He was called Jesus. So what does Emmanuel mean? It means God with us. Was he called God? Yes. Is he still called God? Yes. Did he claim to be God? Yes. So it's one coming, claiming to be God who would be virgin born. Did he claim to be virgin born? Yes. So he claimed to be virgin born, claimed to be God. He died in the 37-year window, and he was born here. He was born. He came as a child being, through the birthing process. And so we know that's, that's who was going to be claimed by Daniel to have died, to be the Messiah, die in that 37-year window. Did that happen to Christ? Yes, it did. He made those claims. Were there any others who made those claims during that 37-year period? Not to my knowledge. May have been. But we don't know about them. We know about one, and that's Jesus of Nazareth. So it takes us to chapter 9 of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 9, and in fact, uh, let me just show you something. Here's my Amazon box. And I put the address on here, right? And I put the 33 to 70 AD as the zip code. And I put Emmanuel. And I couldn't get virgin, born of a virgin on there. It looked too uh, busy and so I left that off. But that's Isaiah 7, 14. Emmanuel, God with us, virgin born son. And so you look at this idea of, uh, uh, in Isaiah chapter 9 and you think, where was he supposed to be born? we see in in verse 6 we're, who this is talking about it says and i can't even read this one without hearing handels messiah in my head right for unto us a child is born and i'm not going to sing any more for you but You got the idea. And it's for unto us a child is born. To us a son is given. So here's this idea of the birth of someone. And who is this birth going to be? The one whose government will rest on his shoulders. And who will he be called? And here's some more names for him. Wonderful, counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. And then we find, it says, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne. Why is that significant? Because David was made a promise, the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7.16. And in this promise, God promises David a forever king, a forever ruler that was going to be of his line. In 2 Samuel 7.16, he says, Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. And Isaiah saying, the person who's going to be the forever king is this Messiah who is to come, this one who is called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. And so there again, that idea of God. Now, we know from Micah's prophecy, in Micah 5.8, Bethlehem is supposed to be the place of his birth. Bethlehem, the place of his birth. And, And he says that, and you think, okay, how many people lived in Bethlehem at the time of Christ's birth? According to William Albright... 300. Very small place. That's significant. How many people would have been born in a 37 year period that might have died during the period of Daniel saying 37? And you think, well, even if you had, say, six or seven, 10 births a year out of 300 people. You're still, and you add the 300 and they don't die, you're still going to only be around 600. You're going to have some people dying off during that process. So at most, you're talking 600 people on the planet They could have lived and died during this 37-year period, lived in such a way that that period is when they died in. 600 people. So God has narrowed it down 37 years. God's narrowed it down about 600 people, probably less than that, but I'm being conservative. 600 people born in Bethlehem, and they had to be of the line of David. They had to be royalty because he says he will reign on on David's throne. So he's royalty. He's noble birth. And so we know he has to be of this family line. How many of that family line lived in Bethlehem? I'm not sure. But even if you cut it by half and said, oh, there's 300 in the town. They're all related to David somehow. You're still down to 300. I mean, it's narrowed it down significantly. One family out of one village on earth where the birth was going to happen who died in that 37-year window. Who also, according to Isaiah chapter 9, lived not only in Bethlehem or born in Bethlehem, but lived in Zebulun and Naphtali. We see that from chapter 9 and verse 1 of Isaiah. He says, nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles. And those two are in the Galilee area. So he's saying, in the past, these were not very noble places but they're going to be noble places they're going to be places that are pretty incredible why because there was this one that's going to be born a child is born a son is given and that's what he's leading up to what we just read and so he's he's saying in this land of Naphtali and Zebulun you think why are those significant most of you probably don't know where Naphtali and Zebulun are they're just names to you and you kind of go whatever right well they're in the northern part of Israel if you go with me in 2020 to Israel You'll get a chance to see them. I can show, I'll point them out to you. But uh, if you just look at the northern part of Israel, four tribes. The Galilee area made up of four tribes. Naphtali on the Sea of Galilee. Asher over on the uh, coastline. And then in the Jezreel Valley, two tribes. Zebulun, Issachar. Now Jesus grew up in what city? He was born in Bethlehem, but he grew up in another city. Nazareth. Nazareth is in Zebulun. And then after he left uh, and grew up, he moved to a city of Capernaum. And you see that in the New Testament. Capernaum is on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. And that's the tribe of Naphtali. And you look at this, what Isaiah says, and you kind of go, oh, wow. A person who was born in Bethlehem, lived in Nazareth, and, and moved to Capernaum. And you say, well, how, is, how do you know that Nazareth is, is the place? Well, if we go one, a couple of chapters over to chapter 11, we see kind of a, a little more cryptic uh, 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 promise. It says a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. Jesse is David's line, is it's, it's David's father. Uh, and so it's of the line of royalty. It says, from the roots, a branch will bear fruit. And, and he begins to talk about this branch, this root in the chapter. And, and, and especially, you see it in verse 10 as well. And, and you realize this branch is, is the Messiah that he's been talking about. And, and this branch is, uh, it comes from the word netzer, netzer. And Matthew's gospel, in Matthew 2, he, looking back at Isaiah, I think, says he will be called a Nazarene. Where does he get that? He gets it from there, from this branch. The branch is going to be raised up. And that's why I put Emmanuel, chapter 7 of Isaiah, the Nazarene, or Nazarite, uh, according to Isaiah 11. Son of David, according to uh, chapter 9. for unto us, a son is born. He will, he will be uh, of the line of, he will rule in the father David. Bethlehem, Micah. And 33 to 70 AD, Daniel. And so you look at these different promises, and you kind of go, wow. So he... This one born in Bethlehem, who is uh, of the line of David, dies in a 37-year window, so it's narrowed down time-wise, narrowed down city-wise, narrowed down family-wise, narrowed down to the way of his birth of a virgin, who he claims to be, God, you realize just these prophecies point to one person in the history of the planet to Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but that's powerful to me. Because I realize, you know, I, I might can dismiss some things, but when I look at these prophecies, I go, wow, they, they are so accurate. God in his wisdom through his prophets pointed at one person in history he didn't want us to miss him. And this one person in history is also this person who is now worshiped and has been worshiped for 2,000 years, has been worshiped by billions uh, over the history of the last 2,000 years as the Messiah, as the one who was to come. This same one is this Jesus who we worship and who we celebrate this time of year. We can't miss it who he is. And what he asked for us to do is to respond to him, to respond by faith, to respond by placing our faith in Christ. And when we do that, we who were separate are brought near. Father, we come to you this morning and we thank you for what you have done for us. You have died in our place, Lord Jesus. You have taken on sin that you didn't commit, but we did. And you did so to pay our way that we could not pay ourselves. And you did so, so that you could offer forgiveness of sins. And the prophets are clear as to who this is. This one who was to come and die for us. Lord, I pray that you would help us as as we go through this Christmas season to feel encouraged, to feel hope, to feel excited about who you are and what you want to do in our lives that you want us to live not in poverty but in power, your power, your strength. Lord, I pray that for those who may be here, for family members, I pray that for friends who don't know you I pray that they would feel your urging your tugging at their heart I pray that they would realize that the emptiness they feel inside is because there's a god-shaped hole that can only be filled by God We try to fill it with so many other things Lord we we do and we we try to fill it with happiness and with with stuff and with materialism and with fun and it's only satisfied by you. It's perfectly shaped in your shape. And only you completely feel that, that void in our hearts. So Lord, I pray that we would come to you for that joy, that peace that passes understanding, that being set free that you promise to those who embrace Christ. Lord, we thank you for all that you've done for us. I thank you that you came for us. You didn't just leave us and walk away and you could have done that and no one would have blamed you. But you came for us. You didn't let us just walk away. You came for us. And Lord, we thank you. We praise your name and we worship you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.